Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Everyone hates this rally. I think it's fair to say this is probably one of the most hated rallies ever. Uh, although there are a growing number of people who say that U.S. equities can continue to melt up. Here with us to talk about his mid-year outlook and what investors are looking to do heading into the second half is Chris Heisey. He's Chief Investment Officer at Bank of America Global Wealth and Investment Management. And I want to start with this sort of hatred of this rally. There is a feeling that there is no way uh, that after more than 10 years of an incredible run uh, and a slow-growing economy that this market can just keep chugging along uh, for another year. Do you think that that is the most likely outcome that we will just continue to chug along for another year? Yeah, that's the most likely outcome in in our view for a variety of reasons. But I think the biggest one is the fact uh, that you hit it right off uh, at the top there, which is the bearish sentiment. If you if you talk to people, uh, they feel like uh, you know some of this rally, or at least the latest portion of this rally, is justified because of a, a stalemate on the trade front, no further tariffs that were about to hit, uh, an easier Fed, etc. But in action, the private investor is simply not in the market as much as they normally would be. That's point number one. Point number two is is when you get a Fed that goes from literally hiking in December to a, an about face, a big pivot uh, two months later, starting in January in that, on that uh, panel uh, that Chair Powell did. And then now with the market suggesting at least three cuts between now and the end of the first quarter, that allows multiples to go up, climb the wall of worry. And if the risks remain muted, that's where you get a pretty powerful surge between now and the end of the year, even though we are up pretty aggressively off of the lows um, late last year. So, Chris, we're coming into the earnings period for the June quarter. How important is the near-term earnings outlook for this market? You know, it's, uh, I think it's the tail of the tape at this point. You've got a dual-track economy uh, led by the U.S. consumer in the U.S., and you've got manufacturing and trade that is uh, the leverage of global economies. And you're going to get a mixed bag, in our view, coming out of the industrial space versus the financials versus tech versus retail uh, or consumer discretionary. And when you roll it all up, the earnings numbers that are coming out now should be a small beat because of the low bar. A small beat is likely to support the market. Uh, Then it's going to come down to guidance. It's all going to be guidance, guidance, guidance on a go-forward basis. Uh, So we can actually determine whether or not we're just bottoming out or are we actually going to get some growth in the second half. So, Chris, if you do think that we're going to chug along here on the U.S. equity side for another 12 months or so, I'm wondering what that means for bonds, because there has been uh, something of a divergence with bond yields going lower and lower, typically a bearish sign, while equity markets continue to climb higher. And do you think that this is an incompatible reality that has to at one point, uh, at some point, mean that bonds are going to experience losses or stocks will? 
You know, it's a great point because uh, I think what we have to figure out is to how long this can actually last where bond yields do at least remain close to record low levels or creep even lower from here with equities going up. Part of that is the fact that the multiple is going up um, as discount rates go down. Uh, but most importantly, it's a flow argument at this point. I think we've had the greatest divergence in flows uh, probably ever, if you think about close to $400 billion difference, $200 billion into fixed income flows uh, and $200 billion out of equities, even though we're at all-time highs on the equity side. So uh, from our perspective, the big reason for the creep lower in yields has a lot to do with demographics around the world and the need for any kind of a yield given the fact that 25% of the world's bond markets have a negative carry or negative yield to them, uh, which is close to 12, 12 to 13 trillion. Uh, people call you know, Tina, there is no alternative. I don't really like to use that phrase because there's plenty of alternatives. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you can get a dividend yield, um, potential total return, uh, that's three times the 10-year yield, uh, that's an attractive equity market backdrop on an absolute and relative basis. So, Chris, I want to get your sense of valuation in the equity markets. We've had this big run-up in equity markets this year. Earnings estimates, for the most part, have not risen. What is your sense of where we are in terms of valuation right here? Yeah, it seems like we're borrowing a little bit from from next year, or borrowing a little bit from the future in terms of returns. And that tends to happen if the Fed makes an about-face switch, and it's because there's the potential to create a soft landing. So what the Fed is, seems to be doing, they seem to be trying to right-size the curve, the yield curve. If that's the case, which is what we believe, and it's not a situation where the Fed um, is raising rates last year to stop inflation, because that's simply not in the cards, but if they have to right-size the curve and that is likely to go on, then you get earnings following later. You get multiple expansion first, uh, liquidity first, multiple expansion second, and then earnings follow. And that seems to be what um, investors that are coming back into the market are telling us. We're, we think earnings are going to come. Now, that's where 2020 comes into play, where if earnings don't show 4 5 6% earnings growth, that's where the market's gotten ahead of itself. So, Chris, if you do think uh, that perhaps we're building in some gains now or borrowing from next year, uh, what kind of returns can people expect on their equity investments over the next 12 months? I think if you you put it well, if you look away from the calendar, I know everyone's patterned on the calendar. They ask you about year-end price targets, et cetera. But if we just look at a rolling 12-month basis, we think earnings growth of around 5% between now and that 12-month rolling basis, plus the fact that yields should remain low, if not lower from here, that should push the, the multiple up another point. And if we get 5% earnings growth, that gets you still double digits, uh, low double digit uh, return potential in the next 12 months. So Chris, one of the things we've heard from some investors is this uh, expanding their search for yield and returns. What alternative investments do you think people should be looking at at this point in the cycle? You know, I, I think... Um, we have a risk out there in the next two years of getting too complacent on inflation, meaning there's been an attempt to get to the 2% level a couple of times in the last 11 years, and we haven't really reached that. And the Fed realizes that, and now they're willing to let things run hotter. So the big thing we have to worry about is, do we get too complacent on inflation? That's number one. And then number two, when you just step back a little bit in terms of earnings guidance and earnings estimates, we have now pushed them too low. Uh, the analyst community is about to do the same thing for 2020. They haven't pulled them back yet. Um, but as they pull them back and then we, we borrow some future gains, 
at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what type of correction and what's the driver of it. Um, typical years have two to three 5% pullbacks, one 10% correction. We had that this year. Um, the question is, is do we have another 5% pullback in the cards? That's likely to be earnings driven, not necessarily Fed driven. And that's um, a buy on weakness pullback from our perspective. Chris Heise, thank you so much for joining us. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer for Bank of America Global Wealth and Investment Management based in New York City. Well, we are 10 plus years into this economic cycle. The Fed appears to remain quite dovish and many investors are questioning how much risk they should be taking given the extraordinary performance of the first six months of this year. To get a better look at the state of the global fixed income markets, we turn to Tad Ravel. Tad is Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW with $170 billion under management based in Los Angeles. Uh, Tad, thanks so much for joining us. I wonder if we could just start off by getting a sense of your thoughts about allocation between between you know, investment grade, high yield, emerging markets, where are you on the risk curve here? Well, we're pretty defensive on the risk curve. I think that um, the investors are supposed to think about their asset allocation in terms of a protracted asset price cycle that we have experienced, obviously, but that the time for taking enthusiastic risk with your fixed income portfolio is typically in the first few years of the cycle. That's when you want those big allocations to things like high yields, emerging markets, leveraged loans, the most leveraged parts of the capital structure. As you get into the later stages of the cycle, which I think there is abundant evidence that we are in those late stages, you're supposed to be actually very cautious about making allocations to leveraged asset classes and against leveraged business models. So that counsels a portfolio that has a significant character um, with respect to using sovereign debt, using investment grade debt, top of the capital structure type of exposure in asset backs, meaning triple A's, triple A exposure in commercial mortgages, and avoidance, generally speaking, of, uh, let's say, uh, much of the high yield market, and particularly the uh, single B and below portions of that. So, Ted, one thing uh, that I find striking is that the vast majority of investment managers who we speak to echo the sentiment that you just had. And I'm wondering whether that in and of itself is a reason to be more bullish uh, than cautious, just because if so many people are baking in such caution, uh, what exactly is going to cause this market to turn and, and the positioning isn't really there for something violent, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, those are great questions. Uh, first of all, I, I'm, I do sympathize with the observation that uh, many people are talking the late cycle game uh, in terms of caution in their asset allocation. I'm not sure how many are walking the walk, though. Um, the, the pricing that exists in much of the, uh, the uh, fixed income market doesn't suggest that that is actually the case. But as it relates to what might be a catalyst for turning the cycle and uh, flushing out the risk, you don't have to look very far. Indeed, look back at the fourth quarter of last year, there wasn't really much of a catalyst. It's simply that there was a there was an abrupt shift in risk preferences, and you saw a uh, an abrupt widening of the high yield market 
to roughly five and a half or 550 basis points over treasuries from a level that I think had started the fourth quarter at about 300, and today we're sitting at about 370. But I think that if you're looking for confirmation of the light cycle type of environment, you have your inverted yield curve, you have what may turn out to be a, a, a profits recession as, divine, as defined by two consecutive quarters of, um, of uh, negative growth with respect to earnings that potentially being this quarter. There's a slowdown in China going on. We've seen the statistics with respect to trade. There's a lot of leverage already built into the investment grade market. We have actually seen underperformance in the triple C's. And then you have this whole conundrum of negative yields that 25% of the global investment grade debt out there is, is yielding less than zero. Not exactly a compelling argument for taking risk in your portfolio. So, Ted, it, it kind of brings me to my next question. Kind of what are you seeing as you look across uh, your portfolio in terms of credit quality, given where we are in the cycle? Are you seeing anything, any red flags popping up? In terms of red flags in the market, absolutely. Uh, arguably, even as uh, recent as this morning, the uh, the news with uh, the IPO that, that failed within, not, I don't know if I should call it a failed uh, IPO with InBev, but certainly one that was shelved and pulled, uh, that is a relatively levered uh, business model. That is one of those investment-grade companies out there that I think is running at least four turns, maybe closer to five turns of leverage, which is out of, out of alignment with what you typically think of as an investment-grade uh, leverage level. The fact that the IPO was pulled and therefore the proceeds are not available for deleveraging tells you something about this specific credit, but it also, I think, tells you a lot about the mood and the mind of the marketplace, that the the need or the urgency to delever or to get your metrics back down to uh, more in line for where they ought to be in a light cycle environment isn't there. The reason this is important, at least in our judgment, is that when you look at past cycles, you'll actually see that something like between at the low end 25% and at the high end 40 to 45% of the triple Bs, okay, not the entirety of the investment-grade corporate market, but about a quarter to a half of the triple B universe suffers downgrades to below investment-grade to gets junked uh, into a uh, into a deleveraging type of environment. Given how much triple Bs have expanded in terms of their market value and the size of that market, it could have really devastating consequences for the pricing of below investment grade debt and leveraged loans. So that's, I think, one avenue that you're supposed to be very thoughtful about, the fallen angel risk that may exist in, in a, uh, what would otherwise be thought of as a relatively conservative investment grade portfolio. Ted, uh, earlier in the conversation, you were saying that a lot of people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, and they're not perhaps de-risking as much as it may seem. Where in particular are you seeing this? I think you're seeing it in the corporate markets primarily and in the leveraged loan markets. And the leveraged loan market, since we haven't spoken about it, is probably a really good place to, to focus on that. So the, the leveraged loan market has grown enormously over the course of this cycle and is would appear to be one of the primary vehicles of, of choice as it relates to financing relatively leveraged and smaller type 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 businesses. What appears to be the case is that the covenant light structures and the, the very generous terms that exist in these loan agreements vis-a-vis -vis that of the, of the borrower, generous to the borrower, that is, um, are suggestive that the, the, the traditional originators of these loans are not putting them on their books. It's a, it's a uh, 
going back to the Mark Twainism about cycles rhyming, in the last cycle, those that were very knowledgeable and very uh, up close and personal with respect to the underwriting of subprime mortgages weren't putting it on their own balance sheets. They were securitizing them and sending them into CDO-type structures or somewhere else. In this particular cycle, you're seeing an inordinate amount of those leveraged loans going into the CLO structure. Interesting. So something like 65 to 70% of all of these leveraged loans are not ending up on the balance sheets of the people who are presumptively underwriting them. That in and of itself should, ser- should, uh, should serve to raise a question yeah. about why is that the case. And yeah. of course, the answer is because there is cheap and abundant capital available in the CLO market how knowledgeable uh, that uh, some of those investors might be. I mean, obviously, there are many investors in that space that are knowledgeable, but but perhaps not all of them. Tad Ravel, thank you so much. Uh, We could speak with you all day. We love that you came on. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, coming to us from Los Angeles. Well, we got some economic data out of China overnight, and I guess the takeaway is that China's economy uh, slowed to the weakest pace since quarterly data began in 1992, but there were some signs of stabilization as well. To get the latest, we welcome Tom Orlick. Tom is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Kind of what were your key takeaways uh, from the most recent round of economic data out of China? I think you put it pretty well, Paul. Uh, Yes, this is the weakest number uh, since back in 1992, 6.2% growth. Um, Yes, uh, there are some signs of a little bit of additional resilience coming through in the more high-frequency June data. Uh, we got a bounce in retail sales. Uh, we got a bounce in industrial output. Um, but, and, and this is the crucial caveat I want to throw in, a bunch of the factors which were behind that more optimistic uh, June data aren't going to be very long-lasting. Retail sales, for example, a big factor there was one-off discounts to get rid of uh, inventory of old cars sitting on dealers' lots. That drove a huge surge in car sales. That's not something which is going to be repeated. Um, So we think the June numbers might be a bit of a false dawn, and there could be more weakening to come for China. Tom, how much can we trust these numbers as being accurate? So um, that's the perennial question with China's data, Lisa. Um, And uh, what we do is we run a a bunch of different checks. We look at the GDP numbers against what we call the Li-Ka-Chang Index. That's based on rail freight, electricity, um, and uh, loan numbers. Um, We look at it based on um, different Uh, private and academic gauges of how fast the Chinese economy is going. At different points in the past, there's been really wide deviation, especially back in 2015. The government was saying 6.57% growth. Our private gauges were saying, no, actually, it's closer to 3 or 4%. Right now, our private gauges and the official numbers are actually matching up. So, Tom, you lived and worked in China, uh, in Beijing for many, many years. Love to get your sense based upon your experience of where do you think China is right now as they think about trade negotiations with the U.S.? We've got this latest batch of economic data. Give us a sense of where you think they are and what they really want to achieve. 
So I was in Beijing for the week ahead of that G20 negotiation between President Xi and President Trump and the week after. Um, and uh, we spoke to, to a bunch of people there. Uh, and I can tell you the mood after that G20 agreement was, I would say, a combination of relief and caution. Relief that she and Trump had at least managed a handshake deal. Things didn't get any worse. Caution because, well, we've seen this show before. The top leaders meet. They agree to get along. But once you get into the detailed negotiations of who's going to give up what, talks start breaking down. Um, so I think that's the view in Beijing right now. Relief things aren't getting worse immediately. Caution, concern that we're not too far from the next blow up. Do we have a sense, Tom, of how much of the slowdown is due to the trade uh, tariff, the, the tariffs and the trade wars, and how much has to do with just the fact that China has been slowing down as it shifts from uh, an industrial economy to more of a service-oriented economy? Yeah, so you've got three things going on at the same time, Lisa. You've got the trade war, uh, which is hitting exports directly, but maybe more important, having a big negative impact on sentiment. Um, then you've got the government's deleveraging agenda, um, that awareness that they've taken on too much debt, um, and that needs to be managed down if they're going to steer clear of financial stability risks. And then you've just got the kind of natural inertia, the natural drag that comes when you've got a shrinking working age population um, and an economy which is trying to shift to a new set of growth drivers. All of these things are happening at the same time. Um, and I think that's what's weighing on growth. Uh, and until we see some more stimulus coming in, uh, our concern is that we could see some more weakness uh, in the months ahead. So, Tom, just real quickly, maybe next 30 seconds, it's just how committed do you think the Chinese government is to this deleveraging issue? As you mentioned, they've taken on a tremendous amount of debt over the last decade or so. So I think the thing which China has on their side when it comes to deleveraging is time. Yes, they've taken on a lot of debt, but it's all domestic. And that means they can manage it down over a period of years, maybe even a decade. They're not going to be forced into doing it over a period of a few months. Um, and so what we've seen in 2018 and 2019 is, well, you know what? The trade war, supporting growth, that's the bigger priority now. Deleveraging, yes, we need to do it. We're not going to do it right now. Tom Orlick, thank you so much, as always, for your insights. Tom Orlick is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, talking about those uh, GDP data out of China overnight. Well, a staggering 42 million people face hunger in the United States, while at the same time, Roughly 40% of the food produced in America goes to waste. Our next guest is trying to address a small part of this problem. Matt Joswiak, Matt Joswiak founder and executive director of Rethink Food uh, NYC, that's based in Brooklyn, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. wonder if you could just give us a sense of what your company does, Rethink Food NYC. What do you guys do? So basically, we take excess food that is, you know, normally seen as unusable. We repurpose it and we distribute it to community service organizations to help alleviate the burden on running like your, you know, what you would think of as a soup kitchen. So we collect food from Goldman Sachs, the bank, the cafeterias, fine dining restaurants, 
um, Soho House, Dumbo House. And we bring it back to our kitchen. We make new meals out of it. And we bring them to other community service organizations and essentially cater them to alleviate that pressure, that stress of having to produce food every day for hundreds of people. What's the economics here? I mean, how do you incentivize these uh, companies to work with you and how do you fund yourself? Uh, so initially we're funded by, you know, large scale donations. Um, you know, the 11 Madison Park guys have been really generous in helping us raise money and raise awareness. But what we're trying to do is help people realize that this food actually has tangible value. Like if you were to go to a restaurant like the Nomad and get like this beautiful roasted chicken and just because it's 11 o'clock and it doesn't mean that that chicken is now the value of that is zero. Other, you know, businesses that operate that way, like, you know, the only one I can think of is concert tickets that go to the value of zero. But if you run a business like that, it's just never going to be successful. So what we're trying to do is incentivize business owners to really truly realize the value in their product so that we can offer and suggest, we can't actually tell them what it's worth, but suggest higher in-kind donation receipts so that the tax return is, is larger at the end of the year. So when you talk to restaurants, is it is there prime? Just give us a sense of what their motivation is for, I guess, entering into a relationship with you and uh, donating their food. Well, we all know everybody knows it's a problem. I mean, I uh, you know when we were chatting here before, you had some you know, some options, you know, some situations where, where you knew it was a problem, and we all do. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows. Everybody's aware. We're all we're all, we all know poverty exists. Um, we're simply just solving the problems and everybody says, oh, the liability or this issue or that issue. Rethink is just a problem solving organization. Every single food donor is different. And we take the time and really put in the effort to make sure that they, you know, they get that food out safely. Yeah, and what you're referring to is uh, something when back in college, when I was working in a coffee shop and there was food left over at the end of the day and wanted to donate it to someone who was hungry. I was told that we couldn't because it was a potential legal liability for us should the food be spoiled and someone get sick from it. You're saying that's not true. That's not true. So the Good Samaritan law protects you that if you donate food in good faith um, with the intent to feed the poor, that you are, you're okay. So you have to donate it to a 501c3. So I'm sure in the neighboring area, there was some soup kitchen. And the reason that you're, you're, the business owner didn't want to do that is he's protecting his brand. He's saying that, look, we made this product and we don't want to give it away for free because if we spread it out into the ecosystem, it's going to eventually reduce its value. And what we're saying is that's not true. It's still just as valuable. You're just looking for the value in the wrong place. All right. So I like the way you phrased it. I'm sitting at a restaurant, beautiful meal in front of me that I paid $60 for. When that restaurant closes that night at the stroke of 11, in theory, that value goes to zero and, and, the, and the restaurant owner would throw it away. What you guys do is you have, um, I guess... Um, some type of method to really calculate the value of that meal, which then becomes important for the restaurant as the restauranter thinks about it, you know, the tax deduction for it. So just give us a sense of what you guys do in terms of really assigning value to meals and food. Yeah. So it's a really kind of complicated thing and we, it, it, we're still always working on it and still retooling it and still, you know, always under review. But basically we say, you know, what is, what portion of this meal is this, is this going for? What's the quality of it? How labor intensive is it? And it's basically an algorithm that kind of measures these things in and we say, okay, how much food did you donate over the course of a month or a quarter, depending on how you want to do it. And this is what we, we, kind of think the value of this food is. And if we have to defend it, we will. But, you know, we're just trying to give a better sense of it. What's important to note is that the average food donation value uh, assessment system is a dollar a pound. So if you give me a watermelon, I tell you that six pound watermelon is $6. If you give me six pounds of foie gras, it's also $6. If you give me six pounds of caviar, it's also $6. So it is completely nonsensical. So this is something for the accountants to, you need to sit down with the accountants and figure this out. 
FASB. <laughs> well, I, I guess that I'm struggling to understand also. So do you have like what kinds of chefs you have in and, and, and how you get to figure out which areas need the food the most, considering the fact that the amount of food that you're going to be getting will vary at any given day? Yeah, 100%. That's a, a huge challenge. So what we've done is we're super data heavy. One, because we're super food safety heavy. So everything's monitored, all the temperatures, what comes in, where it's come, coming from, and all that stuff. So another issue we have is you're right. So people, usually it's like a two-day rule. So we'll get like huge spikes of food, not so much the next day. So we have to buy like 5% of our ingredients to supplement those lower valleys. And then we get it out there. It's really not our decision. And we say this all the time at Rethink. We're not community service leaders. We're not like, you know, trying to like out there trying to save the world. Basically, there are institutions already in place that are distributing food, doing it well. And our job is to just help make it easier for them. That's it on both sides. So uh, just real quick here, how can people donate if they want to? If people go to rethinkfood.nyc, there's a donate button at the top of the page. Also, you know, I, I don't know if I regret saying this, but my email address is actually on the page. If you want to get out, we, we're trying to solve this problem. We just need help and support. So reach out if you think you can help in any way possible. Matt Joswiak just uh, gave out his email address on live radio and is sitting here <laughs> looking deeply uncomfortable and full of regret as a result. Matt Joswiak is founder and executive director of Rethink Food NYC, based in Brooklyn, but joining us here in our 1130 studios, talking about a problem that many people have noticed, which is food waste, as well as hunger. The two things, you pair them up, and perhaps you can solve both. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.